My name is Diane Ladley, named by other storytellers as America's Ghost Storyteller. And I welcome you to Hysteria, my monthly podcast series of history's eeriest true ghost stories. Before I begin, be sure to subscribe to Hysteria and rate and review this episode to help other haunted history fans find it. Hysteria is free, but if you'd like to help keep it going, click the links in the episode notes to give either a monthly sponsorship on Patreon.com or a one-time donation on PayPal. For this is history. It's history of tiny footsteps in the dark. In the summer of 2009, I was invited to conduct a paranormal investigation on a house two towns over from mine. As the owner of a ghost tour company, I was often asked to investigate people's homes, but I rarely accepted. I'd explain that I'm more of a haunted historian than a paranormal investigator, and would refer them to a ghost hunting group whose members I respected. Though on this occasion, the homeowner didn't want to take the time to seek out other people. Though they'd had a few unexplained occurrences in the past, just recently the haunting had taken a disturbing new turn. And she told me her story. She had been in the kitchen, cleaning the dinner dishes before going to bed. Her husband was away on business, and she was all alone in the big, rambling, ranch-style home. At least, that's what she thought. As she turned off the water, she was startled to hear a baby's cry, clear and distinct, coming from the direction of the bedrooms. There hadn't been a baby in the house for years. As an older couple, all their children were grown and living out of state, but the sound was unmistakable. She felt the tiny hairs rise on the back of her neck and along her arms, and a cold grip of fear squeezed the breath in her lungs. Cautiously, she followed the fretful howls past the mudroom and back door, past the den to the dark hallway leading into the bedrooms, the sound growing louder with every step. Her thoughts were racing. What's a baby doing in here? Should she call the police? Her husband? Did he know anything about this? Or was she hearing things, going crazy? Tentatively, she poked her head around the corner into the hall, heart hammering in her chest. No, it was definitely not her imagination. The baby's cries were clearly coming from the unlit master bedroom at the end of the corridor. She tiptoed down the carpeted hall, step by slow step, until she stood in the doorway of the dark room. The wailing had subsided into unsettled whimpering, the sound immediate, otherworldly and spine-chilling. Somehow, there was a baby crying in her bedroom. Heart pounding in her throat, she flicked on the light switch and the baby's cry stopped instantly. The room was empty and utterly silent. She searched hesitantly at first, then with increasing agitation as her search revealed no baby and no logical explanation for what she had experienced that night. Over the ensuing weeks, she heard that ghostly baby's cry emanating from the master bedroom on several other occasions, one time even during the day. Her husband started hinting that maybe she should see a doctor. That is, until he heard it too one night. Like her, the moment he switched on the bedroom light, the disturbing cries stopped mid-wail. 
and nearly drove him crazy trying to figure out how the trick, as he called it, was done and who might be doing it. They were both stumped. He balked at calling in a whole paranormal investigative group, so she asked me to discreetly come in and give my opinion. I brought my friend Cindy, one of only two psychic mediums I've ever met who have convinced me that there is something to their abilities. After carefully questioning the homeowner and a thorough investigation of the master bedroom, I asked the question that unraveled the whole frightening mystery. Has one of your neighbors recently had a baby? Why, yes, yes they had just a few weeks ago, about the time their ghostly happenings began. But she couldn't imagine that had anything to do with what was happening to them because the sound came from right inside their bedroom, not the neighbor's nursery across 20 feet of lawn and through the closed window. But I had noticed the homeowner had an intercom system throughout the house, including a unit in the master bedroom. She insisted the intercoms hadn't worked since the day they moved in 20 years before and were good only for playing the radio. But with some experimentation, to her utter surprise, we discovered that the intercom system was inexplicably wired to the light switches. So if both light switches were on in rooms on either end of the ranch home, and if both intercom units were set to the listen capability, you could hear what was going on at the other end of the building. But it was so rare that those intercom units were positioned to those specific settings that with the lights on, no one ever realized the system actually worked. But still, she asked, how could having a working intercom system mean that they could hear the baby next door? Simple. The neighbors were using a baby monitor set to the identical frequency as the intercom system. As long as that bedroom light was off and that intercom unit set to play the radio, it would pick up the sound of the baby crying over the neighbor's monitor. Needless to say, the homeowner was very relieved and couldn't stop laughing about it. She couldn't wait to tell her husband and show him what we had discovered about the intercom system. I told her, yep, mystery solved. They could be so glad that their home wasn't haunted after all. But she stopped laughing and said that uh, she wasn't so sure about that. That's when she told us about the other frightening experience that first led her to believe 20 years ago that their house was haunted. And this time, it left us completely baffled. It happened one afternoon soon after they bought the house. She had spent the day cleaning, getting ready for a dinner party they were hosting that night. Her husband was at work, and she was feeling frazzled with all the things she had to do to get everything ready and perfect. She still needed a few things at the store for dinner, but before leaving, she vacuumed the dining room. She was careful to ensure to sweep the vacuum in long, parallel strokes so the thick, plush carpet pile would be pleasantly even and look nice. And she dashed out to the store. She wasn't gone any longer than an hour, but when she came back, she was horrified to see the front door wide open and dozens of footprints clearly marring the perfectly vacuumed pile of the dining room carpet. Terrified that someone had broken into her home, she screamed and ran to the neighbor's house. That woman grabbed a baseball bat, and together they went to the house, yelling that whoever was in here had better get out now. They were met with silence. 
Once they were both satisfied that no one was in the house, they took a closer look at the footprints in the plush, freshly vacuumed carpet. Some prints were of bare feet, others shod, but all of the footsteps were that of small children. Perhaps the front door had not been closed properly, and maybe the wind had thrown it open, and neighborhood kids had run in and over the carpet? It must have been homeschooled kids, because school hadn't been let out yet. It seemed pretty unlikely, but the only possible explanation. And then they noticed something very strange. All of the footprints were restricted to around and under the dining room table and chairs. There was a good foot and a half of untouched carpet all along the walls and the entrances. If the children had run in, why were there no footprints on the carpet between the front hallway and dining room, or in the doorway between the kitchen and dining room? Did all the children jump into the dining room from the front hall? But then they noticed something that took this mystery from the strange into the fully supernatural. On closer inspection, they found some of the children's footprints were beneath the chairs, with no hand or knee prints that would indicate they crawled under the low seats. Even weirder, two of the heavy dining room table legs and several of the chair legs were positioned squarely inside the footprints in the carpet. The only possible explanation for this evidence was if these small children had somehow moved out all of the heavy dining room furniture without leaving any tracks in that foot and a half strip of carpet leading into the front hall or kitchen, ran around for a while in the middle of the dining room, then moved the furniture back exactly where it had been before running out of the house. And all of this done in the hour she had been out. When I listened to her story, it seemed so far-fetched. She no doubt saw the skepticism in our faces because she phoned the neighbor who had witnessed it, asking her to come over, and that woman testified it was all true. This weird event had never happened again after that one time, she said, and at our request the homeowner even got out her vacuum and recreated her precise parallel sweeping so that we could all watch to see if the carpet nap would settle into footprint-like impressions. Nothing. Then the lady told us that this house had been built exactly on the site of a former two-room log cabin built by one of the earliest settlers of the town. They had a lively, bustling family, although several of their children had died young. And I couldn't help but wonder whether that lady's dining room measured a foot and a half larger than that long-vanished log cabin room where the little pioneer children must have played nearly 200 years ago. Ghost Children No other paranormal entity is more desperately tragic and heartrending to our emotions or more capable of freezing the blood in our veins than that of a child haunting the sight of their death. A suburban home haunted by happy, playful children is frightening enough, but even worse are the ghosts of children who had been abandoned by their parents and society, left into the cold, indifferent care of orphanages and foundling hospitals from ages past. At their best, such places were comfortable and clean, 
where the children were given simple education, trained for future work, and properly fed, though even the most well-intentioned orphanages lacked the simple human contact, mental stimulation, and emotional warmth that will let a child truly develop and flourish. And even the most compassionate can succumb to the blindness of human faults. To understand what I mean, one only has to refer to the 800 tiny bundles of dead babies recently found in an old septic tank buried behind the St. Mary's Mother and Baby Home in Chuam, Ireland. Between 1925 until it closed in 1961, unwed pregnant women were sent there to give birth in shame. The mothers were told they had to leave their newborns there, never to see them again. They weren't given any choice. Over 1,000 babies were adopted out of the home while the rest were kept on, their status as unwanted bastard children continually being reinforced in hundreds of ways throughout their childhood. Many babies born at the home were stillborn or died in infancy. The sisters genuinely grieved over each lost life, yet disposed of them in the old septic tank in the backyard without a decent Christian burial or record of their brief existence or even a name. And this ignorant, outrageous crime was repeatedly committed for 36 years with the very best, most compassionate of intentions by the Roman Catholic nuns called the Bon Secours, the Good Help Sisters. At their worst, orphanages throughout history were their own circle of hell where more than half the children admitted each year would die within a few months, and hunger, brutal abuse, exploitation, and human trafficking were commonplace. Most orphanages fell somewhere in between the two, such as the St. John's Orphanage in a town called Goulburn in New South Wales, Australia. It was built in March 1912 to hold 100 boys between the ages of 5 to 16. However, during World War II, it housed over twice its maximum capacity, 250 boys. But the two-story building only had 12 toilets, forcing the boys to urinate and defecate in hallways, stairwells, or wherever they could relieve themselves without getting caught and whipped for it. In its 66 years of operations, the orphanage took in 2,500 children, but only 4% were true orphans with no living parents. The rest were either child immigrants, or cast-offs from poor or troubled families who couldn't afford to care for them. These parents would simply abandon their child at the door of St. John's, usually with a note pinned to their shirt and their pitiful belongings in a burlap sack. The sack would be quickly confiscated, replaced with a single set of clothes, minus underwear, that they would be required to wear night and day washed only once a week. The boys at St. John's went barefoot in all kinds of weather, and were provided a single pair of ill-fitting shoes only when they aged out of the orphanage at 16 or if they were adopted. Survivors of St. John's told stories of barbaric punishments, daily whippings, inedible scraps of food, icy cold showers in winter, a lack of medical care, even sexual abuse and rape by the caretaker, staff, and older boys. After the orphanage closed its doors in 1976, the building began the long, inexorable slide into decay, made worse by several fires over the past decades. Down the years, trespassers onto the creepy, abandoned, burnt-out property have reported hearing hair-raising sounds. 
and the disembodied cries, screams, and howls of traumatized boys long dead. Thin, human-shaped shadows walk the halls at night, darting from room to room, then pausing to seemingly look back and stare at the intruders before vanishing into thin air. The former Holy Family Orphanage in Marquette, Michigan, has much of the same tales of abuse and neglect as St. John's, but the ghosts that haunt this large, four-story brick building suffered a unique kind of torment when they lived here. Because the first child residents admitted here when it opened in 1915 were not orphans or unwanted at all. No, these were children that came from happy, healthy homes with two loving parents surrounded by a thriving community of extended family, a Native American family. These babies had been ripped from their protesting parents' arms in a ruthless effort to assimilate Native Americans into mainstream white society. When grown, these first graduates of the Holy Family Orphanage were adopted into white families as more or less farm labor. They never learned their own heritage, language, and customs, or even who their true family members were, until the truth of this atrocity finally became public and the Catholic Diocese formally apologized in 2015. Too late. By then, the few surviving stolen Native American babies were in their 80s and 90s. Nearly all their parents and siblings were already dead and gone. Even as grown adults, most of these survivors of the Holy Family Orphanage refused to speak of their time there, save to say that the nuns were cruel, their punishments occasionally taking an unsettling, even sinister turn. Those who did speak told of a boy who died under mysterious circumstances at the hands of a nun, and how the sisters covered it up, storing his body in the basement. But the most infamous account is that of a little girl who disobeyed a nun's commands and kept playing outside in the woods even though a snowstorm was rolling in. Angry at the girl's defiance, the sister left her out there, locking the door behind her. This was not an uncommon practice at the Holy Family Orphanage. The nuns often put unruly children outside in cold weather to teach them a lesson. However, this time, the girl got lost in the heavily swirling snow and darkness and either froze to death or caught pneumonia and died days later. Still angry, the nuns decided to make an example of her. They put the girl's dead body on display in the lobby for all the orphans to see. Every child was forced to view the corpse of their friend in a horrific lesson as to what might happen to them if they too ever defied white authority. The last of the children left the Holy Family Orphanage in 1967, but it wasn't until the 1980s that the building was completely abandoned by a bankrupt out-of-state owner. Over the decades, trees have grown in its empty, decaying rooms. Insects nest in rotting furniture from eras past, and the warped linoleum floors are littered with pigeon droppings and thousands of shards of glass from a hundred broken window panes. The creepy, decrepit old building tucked in its remote, forested area with its sordid past is a magnet for thrill-seekers from the nearby university. These teenagers often get more than they ever bargained for. One woman reported sneaking in with friends late one night. 
only to run screaming from the building in terror when a rusty old baby carriage rolled across the floor toward them, propelled by invisible hands. A mysterious green light has been seen glowing around an antique medical table down in the basement where the body of the boy who mysteriously died had been hidden. Orbs of light flit and play in the halls after dark with no rational explanation for them. And in the old lobby, witnesses have reported freezing blasts of cold, a vomit-inducing stench of dead flesh, and the eerily directionless sound of children sobbing in fear. The lobby is where the orphans were forced to view their little friend's frozen corpse in a psychologically scarring lesson of racial dominance. Let's hope that these terrifying reports are only local legends, and that the former Holy Family Orphanage is not truly haunted, because in 2017, the building was bought and completely restored into apartments for the homeless of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. One wonders if these residents have ever heard these bone-chilling tales of ghostly orphan children. And if so, do they lie awake at night, listening for the pitter-patter of tiny footsteps in the dark? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of History. Next month, we'll continue to explore child hauntings with true accounts of people's brush with entities that may or may not be departed children, including recent very disturbing encounters with the so-called black-eyed children reported in both Staffordshire, England, and in a bank parking lot on North First Street in Abilene, Texas. History is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. Before you go, remember to click that subscribe button as well as click those five stars to give me a good rating. That really helps other fans of haunted history to find and enjoy this podcast. You could help me create more episodes of History for as little as $1 a month as my artistic sponsor on Patreon.com or as a one-time donor on PayPal starting at just $2. It's easy and secure. I've included links in the notes for this episode. Or just go to hysteria.com and click the Send Diane a Tip link. Thank you in advance. I gratefully welcome and appreciate every single patron. And please, won't you friend me on the Hysteria Facebook page and drop me a note. I'd love to hear from you. And lastly, thank you, dear podcast listener, for tuning in to Hysteria. It's history of tiny footsteps in the dark.